I was a very dramatic teenager and, you know, sort of considered lining up the, the, the paracetamol, but I think I only had like half a packet, so it was, <laughs> it was never going to do anything anyway. But just that, that feeling at that time of just going, I don't want to deal with this and I don't want to be here. Welcome everyone to episode five of On My Mind. This week I'm joined by Nathaniel. Nathaniel is a HIV positive queer activist and theatre maker from Manchester. He writes, directs, inspires and produces bold and provocative socially minded work. Diagnosed two weeks after his 17th birthday and just months after coming out as gay, Nathaniel kept his HIV status secret from friends and family for over 14 years. After coming out of the closet again in late 2017, he's now advocating loudly for better contemporary representations of HIV in popular culture. Nathaniel has an inspiring story, which I hope we can share some of today. Nathaniel, welcome to On My Mind, and also thank you for agreeing to my invitation to come along and talk to me today. My pleasure. I feel like we need to get stuck in. We've only got an hour with each other. Yeah. So... In terms of HIV, tell us what is HIV and what is it? What does it mean for you living with it in terms of looking after yourself? So HIV um, is a virus. Um, it stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus, um, and it's no different really to the common cold. Um, so it is a viral infection. Um, what makes it a what makes it unique and an intelligent low life is is the part of the body that it attacks. So it it can only live a virus can only live when it's actually inside a specific cell. Um, and with this one, the clues in the title, human. So it needs to be inside a human, and it attacks the immune system. So within your immune system, there's loads of different types of cells, um, and um, HIV. Um, attacks and needs to be inside the CD4 cell which is the sort of if you think of your immune system's army as an army they're like the foot soldiers so they're the ones that go out and find infection in your body so um, what um, HIV does is um, latches onto that injects it with RNA which is a single strand of DNA and then attaches that to your DNA um, inside that cell and uses that cell as a factory to replicate more of itself. So that's the same as any virus. That's what all viruses do. Um, but um, HIV attacks those particular cells. And so when that cell is full, it bursts and dies. And then you've got all those copies of HIV that then move on and do do their thing as well. So, so yeah, that's what HIV is. But I suppose... I think what people get confused is like what's AIDS or um, and and what's the difference. Yeah, you often hear the terms <laughs> used interchangeably. Yeah, and they're not interchangeable at all, really. Um, you really in the medical profession now you won't really hear the term AIDS used anymore. I mean, a because not many people um, progress to AIDS anymore because of advancements in treatment, but also because of the stigma really just attached to that word, that kind of word. Um, so you really don't hear professionals say anymore. They, they, you tend to hear them say advanced HIV, maybe more. But AIDS is, um, um, is basically if HIV is left untreated. So what happens is eventually your CD4 cells are so depleted that your body can't detect 
um, that it's being attacked by other things. Um, and so you can develop a whole um, 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 collection of different illnesses, um, serious illnesses and cancers and pneumonias um, uh, that would that would then lead you to have an AIDS diagnosis and then and then potentially die from that. So something like a common cold could turn into something much more. Yeah, sinister. well, yeah. So it could just be, um, you know, uh, once once you, once your CD four count drops below around two hundred and fifty, that's per like cop- a certain amount of copies within a millimeter cubed of blood, um, then that's when your immune system is considered to be quite weak. Um, but most people um, who might get an advanced HIV diagnosis or an AIDS diagnosis, so for instance, they didn't know they had HIV and it's been left untreated for a long time, um, they might even have as little as like one copy in, of, um, of one CD4 cell. Um, but a healthy humans, a healthy males is around um, 650 to 1,000 um, per millimeter cubed of blood. Mm. So so left untreated, it can it, um, your immune system can... Um, be so depleted that it can't you can't fight off other infections that said it doesn't mean that you can't actually recover from from an aids or hiv uh, advanced hiv diagnosis so this is where you see a lot of people saying it's really important to get tested regularly because actually sounds like getting that diagnosis really early has a significant impact on yeah totally because because you don't the the this, the symptoms people always often ask me what are the symptoms of HIV you know how would I know I've got HIV you probably won't because they're no different to getting like a bad cold for most people so um, HIV tends to it tends to take around three to six months for your body to recognise that you've contracted the virus and whenever you get any virus or bacteria it's not the virus or bacteria that makes you feel bad it's when your body then has to fight it and uses its energy and its resources are depleted in fighting it is what makes you feel ill and gives you symptoms. You get a snotty nose to try and stop the infection coming in through more infection coming in into your body. So um, with HIV, it tends to take about three to six months for most people for it to for the body to recognise. And then you you have um, what's called like a seroconversion, which is where the immune system has an has an immune response. It goes oh crap, there's something here that shouldn't be and it starts to try and um, try to kill it off so it'll send the various different cells that it needs to to try and do that and it will do with HIV it will it will start to do that or, um, but eventually over time um, the, the CD4 cells become so depleted that the immune system starts to um, starts to break apart but uh, I suppose with, um, with HIV for most people they get um, like maybe a bad cold they might take a week off work and then they feel better again and they get on with their lives. And actually it could be any number of months to years before um, the real damage is done. And obviously at that time as well, you, you, if you don't know you've got HIV, you are then potentially infectious to other people. So there's a real strong message there, isn't there, yeah. about get tested regularly? Get tested regularly because you don't mm. know. And if you're sexually active, I always say, I, do, I go, go out to quite a lot of um, schools and colleges and I always say to the, to the, to the young people there, you know, you look after your your dental hygiene. You go every six months. If you're sexually active, go every six months and get yourself tested. You know it just shows the same sort of level of respect for your for your body 
um, and for for all you know any anyone else that you might be having sex with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only way, really, unless you have sex with somebody who knows, who then tells you they're HIV positive, and and that's really the only other way of knowing is to to be tested regularly um, and make sure that it's caught really really early on, so mm-hmm. that you so that you a don't pass it on to someone else, but b you can receive the treatment that you need um, to to stay healthy. And I feel almost a little bit archaic saying this, but this is not just a gay thing. And uh, this was peddled for like years back in the 80s, but this is not just a this is not just a, a gay problem well here's a bit of history for you so when it first was recognized in around 1981 when it first when um sort of you first started to get reports about hiv um and it was in san francisco and it was actually named um grid which was gay related immune deficiency um so it was it appeared at the time to only be affecting gay men and so it was it was sort of it was a mysterious cancer that appeared to only um, affect gay men and 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 then throughout the 80s as it spread in the age of international travel things um uh, infections travel fast now and can spread around the globe quickly um particularly in in the western world um it was um that was all kind of um people saw it happening in the gay community and the homophobia at the time was ramped up to a, a level you know sort of not really seen previously we thought like we took our progression from the 60s and the sexual liberation and the the, the declassification of homosexuality not, not the declassification the decriminalization of homosexuality felt like we were on a an amazing trajectory and then all of a sudden this this thing came along that gave um homophobes more fuel to their fire but it's not but you know, it definitely is not um, a, a a gay only thing. It does disproportionately affect gay men, um, but you, you can catch it if you're straight as well. So it's really interesting to think that the, probably the same people that were saying homosexuality was a lifestyle choice were the same people that were saying we had a unique body that could only yeah. <laughs> the only body <laughs> yeah. that could contract this yeah, exactly yeah yeah this disease yeah. as it was back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, but I think you know I. It, it HIV is present in a number of different and it can be contracted in a number of different ways. I mean, the most common way is through penetrative sex, unprotected penetrative sex. Um, it can be um, the the other ways it can be passed on are through um, need sharing needles um, with somebody who has HIV, um, and and then it can also be passed on mother to baby. Although in the UK and in most most countries of the world now that's very very rare because mothers are screened for HIV mm-hmm. and even if you have HIV as a mother you you won't you with modern healthcare you won't pass it on to your baby the 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 main time that you might do is through a traumatic childbirth um or potentially um but I think the I think last time I checked it was like 0.01% chance so it's really really low and then most um HIV positive mothers um, don't won't breastfeed because it's present in breast milk as well. So the advice is to not breastfeed. But I've, I know loads of women who um, have um, HIV, HIV negative children, even though they're HIV positive. And even even men can um, have who are HIV positive can um, have a, a HIV negative child and not pass on HIV to the mother as well through a process called sperm washing. Wow. <laughs> 
That sounds interesting. Right, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it involves. I just imagine like yeah. um, little um, little men in white coats, like <laughs> taking your sperm sample and putting like little rubber gloves on and cleaning it a little. Giving um, it a good wash. Sponge. I don't know what it meant. Basically, the, the HIV is present in semen, which is the fluid and not actually in the sperm itself. So you can remove the sperm from the semen and, and safely, safely impregnate the egg. But it sounds like what you're saying is you can't get it from having a good smooch on the dance floor. <laughs> no, definitely, you can't. You can't get it from kissing, uh, lesser than the myths. You can't get it from kissing. You um, you actually, um, people might be surprised to know that you can't actually get it, it from somebody who is on um, treatment um, as well. So somebody who is receiving um, HIV treatment has been on HIV treatment for at least six months and is what's classed as undetectable so that is that the, the current tests cannot detect that there's HIV in your blood anymore um, all the studies now from around the world are all pointing in the same direction they're all saying that there is no risk of you actually passing it on to a sexual partner um, which is just the most incredible news in the last in the last sort of year or so it's really um, the research has really shown that that is the case and people are confidently saying that that you know if you're undetectable you're untransmissible you won't pass on the virus there was some there was a study wasn't there where it basically they they did f somewhere in the region of 50,000 unprotected sexual interactions penetrative sexual interactions between a positive partner and a negative partner and not once did the virus pass over yeah. if the positive partner was taking care of themselves was taking the medication that yeah. they've been yeah been yeah. prescribed yeah. which is just a revolution in mm. you know in the way that we think about hiv and and um particularly for people living with hiv and for me getting that message out so people understand that it's it is just not the illness that it was in the 80s and 90s and it, in fact it's not it's not the illness it was a few years ago you know with that with that new information that's really kind of shifted um the way that i think about hiv and i think the way that everyone else needs to rethink mm -hmm. about hiv and you touched on medication some people might have this image that you're kind of rattling as you walk because you're having to take all these pills to kind of stave off this little critter of, of a virus um talk to us about your, your well, i take one routine. one a day it is quite a large pill though it's like a horse pill <laughs> so if you've got an aversion to, to taking large pills it can take a while to get used to um it's interesting now for most people it's a once a day tablet um it does depend on the individual there's a whole range of therapies and it, it's not the same for every person um the problem with a virus is every time it replicates it mutates every single time and so that's doing it millions billions of times in one person so in terms of keeping up pace with stopping it from um stopping it from doing what it needs it does is um you know new drugs all the time have to be um, researched and found but what they found um i mean if you if you what if you've seen anything um any film or anything with reference to hiv treatment in the in the 90s you'll get those images of people with hand, handfuls of pills and that's because when they first started treating they they didn't it looks like no one no one knew what it was um and so the first drug that was used was azt and it was i think really it was just a bit of a I guess someone found that there was this drug for a cancer that was trialed 
10 or so years ago and it was it'd been sort of thrown out and oh we'll give that one a go <laughs> it's a bit like potluck and it worked for a time people started taking AZT um and it seemed to do what it was what it was supposed to do and stop the virus from replicating but then after a, a, a number of months or years the, the virus then seemed to sort of um mutate enough um, and became resistant to that drug and so what they realize is that there needs to be a combination of different drugs that are stopping the HIV replicate in different ways I mean this the science behind it's really fascinating um, but they stop some of them stop the HIV getting into the cell some of them stop the, the, the them from breaking down your DNA they do various different things um, and so they realized that people need to take a combination and so um, it the combination therapy sort of came out in the in the mid to late 90s um, and it's sometimes referred to as heart which is quite nice it's a highly active antiretroviral therapy and that's the kind of um, uh, sort of medication world that I was I, when I was diagnosed I was coming into but actually by the time I went on to medication which was about six years after I was diagnosed a once a day um, tablet had been found um, although it wasn't it wasn't the uh, wasn't the saving grace that everyone thought it would be because the in the in the sort of medical world the holy grail was to find a once a day combination tablet that would work so it could fit around people's lives better and there wasn't all the sort of side effects associated with taking you know loads of different tablets and some with food and some without and some that made you nauseous and some that gave you diarrhea and all this thing um but it turned out for me and for a number of people the the the, the first one state tablet um, caused lots of um, uh, psychological side effects um, and in fact now it's not given to anyone who has any history of depression or anxiety um, because it can heighten um, those conditions but I used to have hallucinations <laughs> on my um, uh, on that very very trippy dreams but actually almost high every night um, taking that drug um, I mean maybe one or two nights that might be fun but I exactly yeah yeah exactly ongoing. if it's ongoing and every night and mm -hmm. and uh, you know um, along with night terrors and excessive sweating and thinking that there's like someone coming through the window when there isn't um, and then generalized anxiety during the daytime um, yeah not great it's it's a drug that works for some people and it just it just turned out that it didn't work for me but now in terms of what I do take it's just it's I literally have there's no side effects at all from taking the tablet so um so it sounds like there's a lot going on behind the scenes there's a constant need to research to develop new drugs but in terms of how it impacts you one tablet a day and and do you has the diagnosis made you change change anything else in your life in terms of your lifestyle how you look after yourself um i mean you know obviously you're encouraged to have a healthy lifestyle um what's interesting for me is being diagnosed so so early on so young in my life um actually what i what i did is over police my own behavior and the way that i treated my body um in that um, I sometimes stop myself from having a good time, which actually is really beneficial <laughs> to your body and your overall mental well-being. Um, so in a sense, I think I, it kind of, I was a little bit too strict with myself in terms of looking after myself. But, um, you know, I think if you have a long-term health condition, generally, you know, I think it makes you think about you're faced, you know, you're faced with your own mortality when you get that diagnosis. So it makes you think about the choices you make and what you're going to do to your body and 
you know, mm. how well you're going to look after it. Um, but um, but in recent years, I've more more recently become more relaxed about um, what I do, um, you know, how I look after myself, um, and 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 take a more holistic approach to that rather than you can't do this or you can't do that because it might have a negative impact on on your health well you know we this is no longer a um, terminal illness you know there was a report published last year that i had a look at uh, in preparation of this interview that said life expectancy is broadly the same well right? actually some some uh, some studies are suggesting even maybe even longer now um because um the I go to the doctors every six months and I have everything checked. Every, you know, so I... Uh, full MOT. Full MOT every <laughs> six months, exactly, yeah. So um, in that sense, you know, I say to to um, friends of mine who are the, the same age as me and I'm like, when was the last time you went to the doctors? And it's like, I don't know, six years ago. Um, so in, in a sense, I'm in a fortunate position that I have, you know, my heart checked out and my cholesterol and, and my liver because the drugs um, can impact your liver. You know, the, there are side effects from the drugs that, that longer term, we don't really know what they might do um, taking these drugs. They're brand new. You know, the drug I'm on came out like a few years ago. So um, so there are, you know, there are sort of concerns and worries for the future. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you know you're very closely monitored. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm probably going to get old, more older and decrepit than everyone else <laughs> with any so, luck. So it sounds like although um, it's not a, a life sentence, although you don't have to make huge changes to lifestyle, it doesn't sound like it's the sort of thing that you'd want to willingly invite into. No, I, I would say it's not something you want to go shopping for, really. And it's a really difficult message to get out there because on one hand, you want... Um, you want people to understand that it's not a death sentence, that, you know, there's still life with HIV. I still do everything in my, I've still done everything in my life that I wanted to and probably more. Um, but but with it comes, you know, um, a whole load of other issues in terms of stigma, in terms of shame, discrimination still is, still happens, in, particularly in the workplace where it can be misunderstood quite a lot. Um, and, and, and alongside it comes, I think, a lot of... Um, uh, uh, sort of associated mental health issues as well, mm. associated with the fact that it's such a stigmatised disease. I'd really like to come back to the stigma, but I want to pick up on the point that you were diagnosed as HIV positive after your first sexual experience. Yeah, well, my first, uh, what third base? What's the, which way round is it? <laughs> Going on which? I'm not American. The full, the full Monty. The full Monty. The full Monty. So I'd had sexual experiences before that, but I'd not had penetrative sex, and it was the first time that I had penetrative sex with another man, um, um, or around that time, um, which is when I contracted HIV. So I was 16 years old. Um, most likely when I contracted the virus, although I was diagnosed two weeks after my 17th birthday. Um. And I just, I guess I'm sat here thinking, wow, what, what the hell must that have been like facing that diagnosis at such a young age? It was, do you know, it was, it was weird because at first I was in denial. So at the time, um, the, um, the test was an opt, an opt in test. So, so when you went to the STI clinic and asked for, you know, an STI checkup. They used to they used to say, "Do you want an HIV test?" Whereas now it's an opt out, and they go, um, uh, "Do you not want an HIV test?" Basically, and so I kept going, "No, I don't want one." 
because it wasn't sort of part of the, the main offer. It's like, oh, we'll check for all these things and then we can check for that. And I just went, no, I don't want that because I was like, there's no way I've got that. Um, so I just sort of lived, just was in blind denial that it could be that. Um, you know, I had other symptoms. I had a, a whole list of sexually transmitted infections that needed to be treated at one time. Um, and then I think at the clinic, they sort of realized that I'd shown the signs and symptoms and that I was very much, you know, probably at high risk of, you know, having HIV. So they kept sort of calling me back and eventually I, I said, yes, I'll have the test. And I did, went back two weeks later. And to be honest, when you first, when you first heard it was, the only thing I could liken it to is like being hit by a truck. Like it was a real, it's almost like a moment in my mind that's not, that's been erased now because it was quite a traumatic experience. But almost immediately after that, and I think what lots of people do after trauma is they just carry on regardless. And so the, so you underplay the, the trauma. Yeah, minimise, yeah. You minimise it, yeah. And you go, okay, it's fine. We just um, suck it up and get on get on with it which I suppose is it's just a natural response and it's just what we do as as like as human beings um and that's what I did I just carried on um and I didn't tell anyone and well didn't tell very many people um including my family and just um threw myself into my studies I was just going into my a-levels um and you know I was already a, a, a relatively high achieving student so just kind of fell it pushed myself more into that that category and worked hard and you know sort of excelled at my a levels and threw myself into that there's a sense of kind of just putting it to one side going can't yeah. deal with that yeah. not now yeah 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 and just and because as well i suppose i didn't realize this at the time but because i was still in that slight gray area of not being an adult and not being a child I, there was a lot of support happening around me um, which I probably wasn't aware of and, and people talking to each other. So my college were very, very supportive um, and offered um, sort of counselling with the principal himself, which was amazing. Um, and and um, particularly, I got quite a lot of support from the clinic um, itself as well. Um, and so in a sense, because I had this quite amazing support structure, um, that sort of almost stopped me from turning to like family and friends in a sense because it helped compartmentalize it away from the from those things and, and kept it as this one thing that was away from family time and friend time um, you had this part of your life that was f almost just for you to know about yeah and yeah and I mean and it, uh, the reasons why people don't say it, they're so complicated the, the, the shame and the stigma that's attached um, you know particularly for me as the more as I've got older and I've reflected on it I am um, you know it's it's for me it's you know it's linked to the shame that that lots of gay men have inherently within them from from you know growing up in a homophobic world it's very difficult to no matter how confident the exterior you know when you when you grow up and you're you're bullied because people perceive you to be gay or when you know growing up in the in the 90s until until sort of the tony tony blair came into power and things started to shift the uk was profoundly homophobic at an institutional level as well and schools couldn't talk about 
sexuality because of Section 28, which was the lovely Mrs. Thatcher's government's um, policy that said that you couldn't talk about homosexuality within a school context as a... As a um, I can't remember the wording, but as a sort of alternative to heterosexual family life. And so schools were terrified. And that came in in 1987 and was repealed in 2003. Uh, I left school in 2003 and that's when I contracted HIV. So I grew up, as as did um, all gay men of my generation, um, never having any real talk or positive representation of who we were in school. Um, and and lots of schools, and not all schools, um, and not all teachers, but um, lots of schools weren't very good at dealing with hom- homophobic bullying either, because there was legislation in place that said that you you couldn't, and it was, I think, just ingrained culturally, and it still is in some institutions as well that it's okay to say, you know, to make um, references, homophobic insults, or. Um, and so I remember being bullied at school, but n- nothing ever being done about it. And I've got friends and, and who, you know, who were bullied and rem- they were removed from the school, even though they were being victimized. <laughs> so, so there's this whole world. Um, so for me, then sort of dipping my toe in the, the world that I knew that I was part of, the gay world, and this thing that was sort of illicit and wrong, in in my mind um whilst that was very thrilling <laughs> um then all of a sudden it was like oh everything that you told me was going to happen went wrong <laughs> so it sounds like you were just really unprepared yeah yeah totally. not only for just dealing with your sexuality yeah but also then to be have this diagnosis just kind of put straight on top of that and I guess at the time there was still in schools this notion of this whole grids thing this HIV gay we can't talk about HIV in schools because it might be talking about homosexuality and then we can't talk about homosexuality it feels just like the system let you down yeah and I don't I'm I'm always really careful to try and not lay lay blame at any one door because it's so complex do you know what I mean the whole the whole reasons the reasons why I kept quiet uh, and, and you know I'm quite a um for the most part, I, I don't, I'm quite a closed person. You know, that's just who I am naturally as well. So that's that plays a factor in the reasons why I might have kept it quiet for so long as well, you know, and there's a, there's a whole host of other reasons. So I don't just want to go, oh, it's because of that or it's because of that. There is, to a certain extent as well, responsibility with myself, you know, and I, I also um, want to, you know, be clear to myself on when I've potentially made bad in inverted commas choices or you know or, or um at some point I have to take responsibility for the fact that I didn't tell people um and that was my choice um regardless of you know the, the reasons behind that so it's really complex mm. and that's why when people like you know when, when we're talking about it being really treatable and it being not that much of an impact doesn't have that much impact on your life it's it, on one hand it doesn't but on another hand it really does um, and I, I don't know, of, of all the people I know who are living with HIV, I don't know one who doesn't have this complex relationship with it. Well, it, it sounds like, I mean, we know from the intro that you kept it from your family and friends for years. So there was a sense there that it wasn't something that you could talk about. You held it to yourself. And I just, I guess I want to ask you, this was last year, just last year that you came out to your family how do you even go about doing something like oh, that? Oh my word! Well, 
um, you have a, you have a, a year that sort of feels like a, an ongoing mental breakdown first, <laughs> and then realize that actually something's got to change, something has to give. It just comes to this point where you're like, I have to. I have to say this now and, and and it's not for want of trying I'd wanted I tried so many times to say it and it just always got stuck in my throat um and I mean if we go back to when I was first diagnosed you know I was still a child really 17 I thought I was an adult but I wasn't and I had this attitude that I could deal with it and then I went off to university so every time I was back home was you know nice family times it was like coming back for birthdays or for Christmas and or you know weddings and you don't want to like come home and then be like oh hi HIV positive by the way Um, and also I've kept it from me for a few years so here's you know double whammy so it just sort of became easier to not and just to to enjoy those times together as a family because my family are really supportive and loving you know and I knew that there would never be a negative reaction to it but then the longer I left it the more of a big deal it became and it became this huge thing in my life and I remember speaking to um, a support worker because I'm probably about probably about eight years eight or nine years ago now um, and saying this year I'm going to tell them and they said actually what you're doing there is bad because you're setting yourself up to fail because if you don't tell them it's going to it becomes a bigger thing and it snowballs more and more and so I um just buried my head and and avoided it totally um and I suppose that's also about not admitting to myself as well um but when I when so yeah coming to when I actually told them um I um I'd had a year that was for me chaotic in terms of my just feeling a little bit out of control depressed not really knowing why I was feeling that way Um, and then realizing that actually this is what it was so I wrote a letter um, and I printed it four times and I sent it no yeah, four times and sent it to my mum and dad and my brother and my two brothers and their partners and my sister and her partner all in one go, just posted it. What so. was that like, putting that in the letterbox? <laughs> yeah, I dramatic. just had this wave of anxiety dramatic, as you said it. Dramatic. No, so I um, um, I wrote it out and actually f- what I'd said to myself is write the letter and then see how you feel afterwards. So I, I, I took an afternoon and just wrote it all out and I felt very calm afterwards. So I thought, well, I'll just do it. Just go and go and post I actually bumped into a friend whilst I was like walking down the street and I had them in my hand and they didn't know what it was um and they were like how are you and I was like yeah 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 I'm fine <laughs> just knowing that I was about to do this uh, what what at the time felt very life-changing but actually it's not because I posted it and then it was just a bit underwhelming really <laughs> just got like a few nice messages going we still love you and that was that was it and we have talked about it since but there's no big it's not it's you know there's no big deal and and there's an understanding of the reasons why I might have been you know quiet or ashamed to say it out loud so there's been no judgment on that either which um so if anyone thinking it's going to be a big dramatic thing for for me it wasn't but I know for lots of people it, it is because lots of lots of people's friends and family do have negative responses so I was very lucky in that sense and I guess that's why you're doing what you're doing now because you want to reduce the negative connotations of it yeah you're happily engaged which some of my listeners might be disappointed to hear (laughs) but you haven't always been and I guess there's something about 
you will have been dating and yeah. this will have come up. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if you've got any stories about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I have. HIV is really f- a funny um, thing. I've always said you get re- re-diagnosed at different points in your life. So for me, I, I had the diagnosis, but then at that time, you weren't put straight onto medication because the research because the research has sort of changed and the, the way it's treated has changed over the years. But sort of 15 years ago, um, they waited until your um, CD4 counts or until part of your immune system was sort of weakened or, or where it didn't look like it was recovering on its own or fighting. So that was about six years for me. So there was like a re-diagnosis when I went on to medication. And I was also in a relationship for eight years from when I was pretty much from when I was diagnosed. So when that relationship broke down um, and I was single again for about three years, um, it felt very much again like I was being diagnosed again because I had to think about um, disclosure and who to tell and who not to tell, you know, and how to tell people. It's like, do you like, you know, um, you know, if you go on Grinder or a dating app or whatever, and you're like, do you, you know, if you put it out there, then you do get negative response, you know, and uh, and I think I think it's getting better, but people, you know, still sort of ask questions: Are you clean? And I'm like, yeah, well, I shower, um, <laughs> and all these sort of things. Um, but that again, you've got to remember this is a, a number of years back before the you, the undetectable equals untransmittable kind of research had come out. So there was still a fear, you know, and I never I never wanted to pass HIV, HIV onto someone. So there was always a sort of difficult relationship with that. Um, but I remember trying loads of different methods. So some people I'd just tell straight away and see what happened. Um, uh, and then other people I'd sort of wait and then sort of tell them or some people you know some people I might have um, had sex with and then and not told them because it was just a one night stand or whatever um, but I think um, the, the one one instant really sticks out in my mind so I was starting to gain a bit of confidence in talking about HIV with partners after you know dating for like a year or so and I went on this date with this guy um, and um, we went to we went for a, a drink in this pub um, and I didn't fancy him, so it wasn't going to go anywhere. I realised that when we got there, but I was like, "Well, oh, a few one drinks. of those dates." <laughs> it was not, yeah. It was like he was a nice enough guy, but it was like there wasn't there wasn't a chemistry there. So we were having a chat anyway, and we'd had a few drinks, and um, and um, that had loosened me up a bit. And um, we were talking about safe sex and sort of in a sort of like bit of a flirty way. And I um, I said uh, um, at that time, I said, um, I can't remember what I said. I think I said, um, "Oh, it's." Um, it's up for discussion, I think I said, you know, in terms of whether you use a condom or not. Um, and he he was like, well, not really. And we got on to HIV and he didn't know I was HIV positive. And, he's, and he said, you know, it's if someone's got HIV, it's their moral responsibility to tell a partner that they have it. And I was, I was like, well, hang on a sec. It's not my responsibility to look after your body. I was like, it'd be really nice if we lived in a world where I could, or... You know, I wasn't saying I, but where people could go, yeah, I'm HIV positive and not be scared of some sort of backlash or negative reaction from that or sexual rejection, which is, you know, horrendous to think that someone might reject you on that basis. But he didn't seem to understand it. He still sort of was like, but it's, but it, you've got the virus, so you need to tell people. And I was trying to tell him, you know, at that time, I think it was two thirds of new infections come from people who don't know they've got HIV. So this myth that there's all these people with HIV kind of like going around infecting people, because those are obviously the dramatic stories that you see in the press, you know, of people, um, you know, 
intentionally infecting partners, but that's like a mi- minority, tiny minority. And so I said to him, um, I just did this analogy about seat belts and cars. Um, and I, I was talking about how life's full of risk and, and through life you learn to negate risk, but there are things in life that you need to do um, and you you kind of negate whether you do them or not based on the risk and then you do you put things in place to mitigate the risk so I was saying I said to him you know you get in a car don't you um, every day and he was like yeah yeah and I said you know that's the most dangerous form of transport you can take um, and he was like yeah yeah of course and I said but what's the why do you get in a car then if it's so dangerous and he's like well because you get places quicker when you don't need to use any energy so I was like so there's a there's a benefit and then I go, so what do you do to negate the risk? And well, I put on my seatbelt, you know, I pass a driving test or, you know, all these things, I buy a safe car. And and, and I said, and whose responsibility is that? And he said, mine. So I said, so how is it any different with sex? How did he take that? <laughs> Didn't understand it. It was a bit <laughs> too complex. I think it blew his mind. I was like, I, I said, it's no different. Having The only way to never contract a sexually transmitted infection or get pregnant is to abstain from sex. Um, and that's just not a world that most people are going to live in. So there's always going to be a risk. And there's a risk. The, the, the ridiculous thing, particularly with, with um, sexually transmitted infections, is that actually HIV is not the worst one you can get. You know, um, you know, there's all sorts of um, strain. You know, syphilis is making a comeback. That sounds, it sounds like it's on a, <laughs> like a girl group. Doing its UK yeah. tour soon. But syphilis, <laughs> you know, and, untre- and, and untreatable the, the strains of um, uh, so other STIs are back. You know, hepatitis. Some hep- some types of hepatitis are untreatable. So there's this this thing that HIV is the big one, and obviously. You know, you can understand why because of how many people, because of the epidemic through the eighties and nineties, and the the millions of people that lost their lives to it. But um, but I yeah, I just trying to get that that message across to people that it's your your body's your responsibility. And I'm not this like rampant individualist where I'm like we shouldn't care about other people. Of course I care about. I'd be devastated if I knowing if I found out that I passed HIV on to somebody else I'd be absolutely devastated but it's the responsibility why should all the responsibility lie with me when there's two people involved in that exchange and you both unless there's a power imbalance and 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 whatever but if you're two consenting adults then then as you know you as the HIV negative person have as much responsibility as the person who's HIV positive and I guess what you're saying there is you were you were one of the few that actually when you were dating did disclose but actually you didn't do that because you felt it was your responsibility it was more a case of that's I want to do that because I'm more comfortable with that yeah I think so because people shouldn't rely on people disclosing no of course not of course not because you know there's a whole complex reasons why people might not disclose and actually you can have sex with somebody who's HIV positive and not contract it you know if you use a condom that's 99 percent or whatever effective at stopping transmission so it's not like it's not a given that you go if you sleep with somebody who's hiv positive that you're going to get it if you have unprotected sex and um then yeah but actually more this is what i try to um <laughs> explain to this guy and again he couldn't get his head around it i was like you're more likely to contract hiv from somebody who doesn't know they have it than from somebody who does because because if you have HIV and you know you have it and you're on treatment, then A, you're, un- you, you're untransmissible. But even if you weren't on treatment, you're more likely to use a condom or protect yourself from other infections. And you don't, you're not going to want to pass it on. Whereas 
the person I got HIV from didn't know he had HIV. And most people who pass it on don't know they've got it. And again, that's why the testing message is always also really important because you need to know your HIV status so that you can confidently, uh, you know, have the sex that you want to have, fine, you know, do whatever you want to do, but um, know what your status is and then you can you can make sure that you're, you're not a risk yourself or to other people. The message is quite clear, isn't it? Get tested. Yeah. Um, so... I've got a question for you. Um, you've talked a lot about your experience and it feels at times overwhelming. And I guess I'm just thinking, has there been any any dark times? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think I'm 31, so I've had this fair share of life already. Um, I think when I, was, when I was first diagnosed, and I always, I always joke about this and I probably shouldn't, but I was a very dramatic teenager and, you know, sort of, considered lining up the, the the paracetamol but I think I only had like half a packet so it was, <laughs> it was never going to do anything anyway but just that that feeling at that time of just going I don't want to deal with this and I don't want to be here but since then I've never had anything as as really I don't think ever as as low as that point I felt like that was getting the diagnosis was rock bottom for me and then everything else was kind of easier to cope with in a sense um but i suppose when i talk about um uh, sort of you know the the year leading up to when i sort of had full disclosure and stuff you know maybe i was engaging in behaviors that were not <laughs> that um conducive to good mental health i love your diplomacy there. <laughs> yeah so basically maybe taking too many too much drug too many drugs and drinking too much and and thinking oh well, that's just what that's just what gay men do. That's just, a, I'm just leading my best queer life. And then realizing that no, taking drugs in the middle of the day when you should be working is not, is not, not, <laughs> not going to serve you too well. It's not, you can't time. really look at spreadsheets when, when you're high as a kite. So, um, sorry, mum, um, if you listen to this. So, um, you know, so I think, it, um, yeah, it was, that was, that was a realization for me. And, and, and that, perhaps that the balance of trying of having a good time was was no longer having a good time it was actually it was a self-destructive behavior in a sense um and I think that's I think everyone at some point in their life has that and we all have our sort of um ways of coping whether it be you know overeating or drinking too much or smoking we all have our vices that do it and I don't think don't I'm not a person thing I've not sort of all of a sudden gone like oh well that's not me anymore you know I'm totally clean or you know or I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore um because I believe having a more holistic approach to life is healthier um so you know so it's not like I had this epiphany and then I've gone oh that's not who I am anymore I just feel like once you know it and you're aware of it then you control your own you know kind of the the own ways that you that you deal with things so the 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 um I don't want to say pain that you inflict on yourself but the way that you we all do it as humans you know this we all have an outlet for our um for the complex things that go on inside our heads but I think once you know it and you control it then I think that's a healthier place to be and as you're talking I'm just thinking these aren't just lessons for someone living with 
HIV. No. These are completely universal. Yeah, totally. You know, balance. <laughs> yeah, balance. Yeah, really, really. And I, I mentioned that earlier about, so when I was, when I was much younger, I was very, like, I would, I would sort of um, really police what I ate. And I was kind of, you know, I tried to stay really, really healthy and I wouldn't do drugs and, you know, and, um, and, and kind of would stop myself in a sense from having a good time. And then actually there's a balance to be had between those things because um, my granddad's the best person on this because he's um, 88 now um, and he's like the bionic man because he's like only got one eye and he's had like every ailment going under the sun. Um, and, and he's just, you, you know, you ask him what's the secret to a long, happy life and he's just like, you know do what makes you happy you know so he's he enjoys having a glass of wine and eating cheese so he's still going to do that um and he's diabetic but he's, he likes eating puddings so <laughs> do you know what i mean and it's like you know my mum's like oh no you can't you, you can't have that pudding dad and i'm like mom is 88 like <laughs> enjoying something and actually getting pleasure from something even if it's nece- not necessarily the best thing for you can still be I think can still be good and I think we're so we live in a society that we're so we try and police each other's behavior so much and we say oh you know and we all know we shouldn't overindulge and overeat but actually you know are you going to be so miserable because you're so you're restricting so much what you enjoy doing in life um i think i think trying to find the balance is right and that always sticks in my head from what my granddad said about you know just in you know a little bit of what you fancy does you good <laughs> there's something in that is about empowering yourself with the responsibility for yourself yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also not beating yourself up if you relapse on that as well, because we're all human and we all, you know, we all, we, we're not robots. So you can't. Um, but again, that feels that's something I think you get with age as you grow and you understand and you feel less, um, less need to please people around you or present yourself in a certain way to people so you just like you know you can see it <laughs> you can see it on people's instagram feeds because we now obviously live in the uh, age of social media i think you see as they get towards in their 20s or it's all like it's all really really like process and then it changes mine certainly has anyway there's less posing there's less more self- organic there's less selfies now or if there is a selfie i'm probably pulling a stupid face now because i'm not really bothered about you know being attractive to other men or or being validated by that because uh, with age you know comes wisdom and you know more about yourself well it feels like you it's been a hard-fought identity for you it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. just still learning yeah you've talked a lot about responsibility and something that came into my mind as we were talking was prep yeah um and talking about what people can do to take care of their sexual health yeah tell us about prep what is it what's the deal PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, is basically it's the same drugs that you take to to if you're HIV positive. So it's the same similar drugs to what I take, and um, you can uh, research has now shown that you can take it preemptively. So if you are at risk, you can take PrEP, um, and and it will stop you um, from contracting HIV. Um, so, for instance, if you are sleeping without condoms um, or condoms aren't an option for you, then PrEP is um, is an option. The, the difficulty with PrEP, so essentially it's like contraception for for um, for HIV. Um, 
but um one of the difficult issues that's kind of being or debates that's kind of being fought at the moment is um whether it should be funded or not um because through no fault of mine or anybody's funded by the nhs (laughs) yeah funded by the nhs yeah through through no no fault of ours um that we have a, a system where pharmaceutical companies charge a lot of money for drugs and they put patents on those drugs um for long periods of time so those drugs cost a lot of money hiv drugs cost a lot of money the drug i'm on when i first went on it you know it's difficult to find an exact figure but it, it it's in the region of eight to ten thousand pounds a year you know so there was um some controversy a couple of years ago um uh around whether the NHS should be funding this because people go, oh, can't you just put a rubber on it? Um, And that kind of defeats the object because you could say that all you want, but some people will not do that. And so HIV will continue to spread. And again, that comes back to that, particularly for me, homophobia or moral judgment on the type of sex people I have in. And actually we could stop HIV in a generation if we combined the safer sex message testing and prep now and that's all, powerful it's powerful yeah we could mm. and you know and that's what all the big organized big hiv charities are working towards you know an hiv free world and and um i would just remember in 2016 it was on in the on the front of the daily mail that um wonderful <laughs> um news source uh, uh it was five thousand pound a year lifestyle drug was the headline big big letters what a skewed sense of values and that gives you a sense of the homophobia and the stigma that particularly queer men with hiv um have to face it really really felt like some of the old headlines from the 1980s you know i've been looking at some of those older headlines you know um aids is wrath of god vicar declares was one back from the 80s and that idea that it's a lifestyle drug that you choose to 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 be gay or you choose to be a drug user or you choose these things um that that there is a morality placed on that behavior when actually what we're saying is is a public health issue it costs i'm going to cost the nhs a fortune (laughs) over my lifetime and that's something i have to live with you know and and that has an impact on your idea of your own self-worth if you live in a in a, a society with a public funded health system but actually all the research is showing that that if you put people on people who are at risk and who aren't going to use a condom and who are going to potentially transmit hiv and pass it on if you put them on prep um at the cost of five thousand pounds a year over the course of their lifetime they're not going to cost the nhs anywhere near as much as if they contracted hiv and potentially passed it on to other people as well so the economics kind of makes sense but i think um in people's minds it's difficult to understand that it's a hearts and minds issue. yeah it's difficult because it because it's because of it's associated with sex and particularly with gay sex and maybe promiscuity it's uh, it, it, but it's a similar thing oh i try and liken it to when the the pill the contraceptive pill came out you know and saying to women like well you know can't you just tell your husband to put a rubber on it or you know mm. or like can you just not get raped mm. <laughs> do you know what i mean if you're a sex worker you know and and that's part of your part and parcel of your life you know i think personally you should have every, every right to a drug that could stop you from getting you know um a long-term condition that's going to affect your life and is going to cost 
um, you know, A, is going to have a, a negative impact on your life, but it's going to cost <laughs> the taxpayer. If you want to come down to it, it's going to cost the taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to live in a society where we look after each other. Um, and, and unfortunately, the NHS said that it wasn't their responsibility to fund it, but they got taken to court, so <laughs> and it was overruled. So there is now a trial for PrEP. Um, uh, in England we have a trial of uh, 10,000 people and you can be referred into so if you generally they're targeting it because the gay community is disproportionately affected by HIV generally it's being targeted in sort of metropolitan areas where there are large gay communities Um, but just to kind of again give a sense of I think there's this people have this idea that you know gay men are you know, just leading this hedonistic lifestyles and it's somehow kind of pay off for that. There's loads of, before PrEP was available, I knew loads of gay men who were paying for it themselves. So they, you know, they were taking responsibility for their own bodies and their own actions and they were empowered. And I think that's what PrEP particularly can can do, can empower people to make choices. So if, if people are informed of what their options are, they can they can go, yeah, I'm going to make this choice because um, it's not it's none of anybody else's business what I do with my body um, as long as it's not harming anyone else and prep can can help with that so if you want if if you want to if you want prep go and speak to your GP or your um, local STI clinic about prep because there is a trial and you can be there are still spaces on the trial Excellent. thank you for that <laughs> we're, we're nearing the end and I I want to talk to you about your show that's coming yes. out um, in the autumn tell us about it um, so yeah, so I'm in the process of um, creating a, a one-man show. It's all about me, my favourite topic. <laughs> um, no, it's it's called First Time, um, and it's um, I'm st- it's in the early stages of development, but it is going to be presented in Manchester in late autumn actually it will um, land on world aids day which is really really great on the first of december which will be exactly a year from when i very publicly um stood in sacral gardens at the world aid day world aids day vigil with my family there for the first time and stood on stage and said i was hiv positive so it's a show that's um hopefully very funny um it's not um it's not all doom and gloom um that's kind of attempting to unpick some of the complex issues that we've talked about today and the reasons why I've lived in silence for so long. Um, so it's kind of quite a big public coming out in a sense. Um, and um, and uh, I suppose as well, it's as much about me, about the first time of saying something difficult as it is about the, 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 the reference to me be, getting HIV from the first time I had sex um, and the, the the sort of the take home message I hope is that that people regard it doesn't need to be HIV it can be anything we've all got skeletons in our closet and actually um, there's a first time when you say that and I want people to kind of be inspired maybe to be bold and be brave because it's this is terrifying <laughs> I can tell you um, I am a performer I am a you know but I've uh, to do a solo show and particularly on something so personal um, you know it's exciting and terrifying in equal measure um, I just hope that people are inspired by that to maybe be more open about who they are as a person and not feel that people are going to judge them because once you share it it's like a burden has lifted so hopefully as well there's going to be um got big ambitions there's going to be a uk tour of the show as well in 2019 um so yeah we'll have to watch this space for more 
Excellent. I will post details as and when they yeah. reveal themselves. You you talked about bold and brave, and I feel <laughs> sat here very inspired by your story and really grateful that you came along to share it with us. I'm sure the listeners will agree. So thank you for your time, Nathaniel. Thanks very much. I've got one last question yeah. for you. If you could go back to the time and have a conversation, maybe with uh, thinking about your earlier self, what would you say? Um... I mean, it sounds, it does sound so cliched, but like it gets better, <laughs> you know, like um, it will, you'll go on a, you're going to go on a journey with it and it's going to be, you know, um, I think it's going to be ups and downs. Um, but, you know, I, I, my, I would encourage as much as, if I could go back to my earlier self, I would encourage my earlier self to be, to be more brave and be bolder about, being open about it and not being not fearing being judged by it um and educating yourself about your own illness about all the medical you know delve into all the medical research the the amazing you know research that's being done into hiv healthcare delve into that delve into the law behind it you're protected you're protected in work you know it's hard sometimes to stand up and say that when you feel like you're going to be you might be victimized for it but do you want to work in a place where you might be <laughs> victimized for it or people have those attitudes? I would really encourage people to be as open as they feel comfortable being um, because I've really have lived with like a cloud over me for, for 14, 15 years. Um, and it feels so freeing to, to have that lifted. So yeah, if you can work through that and, and ask for help with that, go and speak to a, a counsellor or get in touch with an organisation like the, like the Terence Higgins Trust or the George House Trust here in Manchester. They've got great support. They've got counsellors, service advisors. You can talk to other people living with HIV as well. You're not the only person. There's, there's thousands of us. Um, so talk openly about it. Nathaniel, you're an inspiration. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Nathaniel's show will be called First Time, and I have to confess that he was my first time having a guest on the podcast, that is. I feel so inspired by his story, which is one of survival, bravery, humour and admiration. Be sure to look out for details of his upcoming show, which I'll post across all my feeds. But in the meantime, I feel the messages contained in this podcast need to be heard far and wide. So let's thank Nathaniel by sharing his story. Self-care is so important, so if you've been affected by anything that we discussed in the podcast today, or you're just curious to hear more, look out for the links that I'll be posting in the podcast description. There was a moment in the podcast when Nathaniel mentioned PrEP and how PrEP could be um, a drug that could stop people contracting HIV. It's worth noting that it doesn't have a 100% Um, effective rate so if you're going to take prep then do your research and I'll be posting a link to that too in the description.